Exodus chapter 17, and we are just looking at seven verses, and I think you're going to find it fascinating just how much is in these seven verses. Uh, We are looking at Exodus 17 verses 1 through 7 tonight, and I know you're going to find it helpful to have your copy of Scripture open and to be reading along with me this evening. We have already seen Israel delivered from Egypt, God very powerfully delivering his people from the bondage that they were in for so many hundreds of years in Egypt. We have considered God's faithfulness in bringing judgment on the Egyptians and through that judgment saving his people. We have seen how that is a type of the death and resurrection of Jesus, that we are saved by God pouring his judgments out on Jesus, the judgments we deserve, and delivering us through that greater exodus. Remember, Jesus likened his death and resurrection to an exodus in Luke 9.31. And we've seen now God bring his people through the Red Sea. We have seen them sing his praises. And now we have heard them grumbling. And we have heard them grumbling. And we are going to hear them Grumbling. You're going to think this is the same sermon that you heard last time and the time before that. It's not. They just have the same sinful hearts. And so we're looking together at Exodus chapter 17, verses 1 through 7. And as you know already, God has shown his marvelous grace in his provisions for Israel by turning the bitter water sweet and then raining down quail and manna for them, even when they were grumbling against him. And no sooner has God provided the manna for his people than now Moses writes this, all the congregation of the people of Israel moved on from the wilderness of sin by stages, according to the commandment of the Lord, and camped at Rephidim. But there was no water for the people to drink. Therefore, the people quarreled with Moses and said, give us water to drink. And Moses said to them, why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? But the people thirsted there for water and the people grumbled against Moses and said, why do you bring up? Why did you bring us up out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? So Moses cried to the Lord, what shall I do with this people? They are almost ready to stone me. And the Lord said to Moses, pass on before the people, taking with you some of the elders of Israel, and take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile, and go, behold, I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb, and you shall strike the rock, and water shall come out of it, and the people will drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel. And he called the name of the place Massa and Meribah because of the quarreling of the people of Israel and because they tested the Lord by saying, is the Lord among us or not? The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of God endures forever. Well, one of the things that I am often astonished at and I try to remind myself constantly so that I don't slip into an entitlement mentality and start grumbling and complaining, is that we are the only people in the history of the world that can walk into an indoor bathroom and have running water and plumbing. We can turn the faucet on and drink water to our full whenever we want. That ought to amaze us. Clean, fresh, hot or cold water. 
whenever you want it, straight out of pipes in your house. Um, you know, human history, that is not the case. People, people fought to find clean water. People longed for new sources of water. They labored for it. They pumped it. They dredged it. They sought it out. It is one of the most significant things, as we've already seen back when Israel came to that oasis and then they came to that pool of water and and the water that they wanted to drink was bitter and they couldn't. And 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 they were they were they were enraged because they didn't have the one thing that they needed to live. Now, here again, there is another account. Israel is going further into the wilderness and the further they go into the wilderness, the more they realize what they don't have. Now, it is interesting. We've noted this recurrently. How much does the Lord have to do for Israel supernaturally before they start to understand we can just call on the Lord and he'll give us what we need? That's the whole point. That's why the Lord turned the bitter water sweet. That's why the Lord rained down manna from heaven was that his people would trust him. He wanted them to ask him for what they needed. He wanted them to pray for their daily bread. He wanted them to say, Lord, we don't have what we need, but you have everything and you can provide all things. Remember, he is with them in the pillar, in the wilderness. And they have just seen God rain this supernatural honey wafer angels food down from heaven to satisfy their longing souls for food. And now, no sooner do they take another step into the wilderness and find no water that we're told in verse 2, therefore the people quarreled with Moses and said, give us water to drink. I noted last week that Israel's besetting sin, if we could say that, was complaining. They were really good at complaining. They knew, they were sophisticated at complaining. They were ready to complain at, a, at, at just a, a second's notice they could complain. And I noted last time we were together that we are no different than them. And we saw the last time we were together that their contention was not really with Moses, but their contention was with the Lord. Notice how this is set out again in this passage. Notice verse 2, the people quarreled with Moses. Now notice this, they say to Moses, you give us water to drink. Notice this, the people are ready to go to another human being for what they need, but they will not go to the Lord for what he alone can give. Isn't that interesting how ready we are to go to other human beings to give us what we think we need or what we want and not to go to the only one who can give us everything that we need and to give it in a greater measure than we could ever imagine. I think there's a lesson there for us. You know, the psalmist has to tell God's people, do not trust in princes. Do not trust in horses. Do not trust in F-16s and F-35s. Do not trust in intercontinental ballistic missiles. And don't trust in Donald Trump or Joe Biden. That's what the psalmist tells the people of God because we are always ready to trust in other people to do for us what God alone can do for us. And so as the people are quarreling, and and this is what I want us to first focus on, their their complaint, and and they're going to bring an accusation. They're going to bring charges, as it were. They say, give us water to drink. Moses says, why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? 
Now, what you may not know about this passage and and what's going to be helpful for us tonight is to understand that in the Hebrew, what the Israelites are essentially doing is they're putting God on trial. The language that Moses uses in Hebrew is judicial language. And, And later on, we're going to see that judicial rod, the rod of Moses with which God judges, and God brings judgments, and God sends plagues, and God divides the Red Sea. We're going to see God's judicial rod in this passage. But leading up to that, Israel is really bringing a legal suit, as it were, against the Lord. Now they're bringing it to Moses. They're acting like their contention is with Moses, but as Moses notes, why do you, in that legal phrase, test Why do you test the Lord? Edmund Clowney says this. Listen to this. Israel accuses God of abandoning them to die in the wilderness. They demand justice. Since God is not able to stand trial, they will accuse Moses in his stead. Do you see that? They want to put God on trial, but because they can't accuse God, they're going to put Moses on trial in God's place. Clowney says they are ready to stone him. Notice that they've already taken into their hands that they are not only the the prosecuting attorney. They are not only the one bringing the the complaint and and prosecuting. They are going to be the judges and the executioners. Notice Moses says, Lord, what shall I do with this people? Verse 4, they are almost ready to stone me. Clowney says they're ready to stone him. Stoning, of course is not mob violence, but judicial execution by the community with witnesses throwing the first stones. Moses understandably asks why they want to stone him. They have been brought to Rephidim by the word of the Lord. It is really against God that they are bringing charges. Um, C.S. Lewis has a book of essays with the title God in the Dock. It's essentially what Israel is doing. They're putting God on trial. They're putting God under their criticism. And they're doing so by putting Moses in his place. Now, you know, it's a frightening thought to think that we can do this. And yet even believers, even true believers, can struggle with this. Remember the account of Mary and Martha. It's my least favorite yet most necessary account in the Bible because I'm very much like Martha. Martha was cumbered with much serving. She was torn in every direction. Remember that? She's throwing a dinner party for Jesus. Here God is in her home, and and here Mary's over there sitting at the feet of Jesus, and Martha's getting frustrated, and what does she do? She goes, and she stands over the Lord, and she says, Lord, don't you care? Of course he cares. He's going to the cross for Martha. Lord, don't you care that my sister is not helping me serve? Tell her to help me serve. She stands over Jesus. She puts him on trial. She tells him what she thinks he should do for her. And we are just like her so often in more sophisticated ways. This is what I deserve. Why don't I have more recognition? Why aren't I more successful? Why don't we have more of this? Why don't I have an easier life? Why aren't things going better for me? And scripture would tell us that when we do those things, we are essentially testing God and putting him on trial. 
That's a very sobering thought for us to realize that we all can do that. And like I said, we do it in very sophisticated ways oftentimes. Now, what's at the heart of Israel's uh, sin is that they are unthankful. I've been meditating a lot lately on my need to grow in thankfulness to God. If we are thanking him, if we are in the practice of thanking him, we are going to be in the practice of trusting him. And we're not going to look around at all that we think is wrong and what we don't have and what we wish we had and what we think God owes us or somebody else should do for us. You know, I've had well-meaning Christians say, I've been serving and serving and serving. When is somebody going to start serving me? I mean, that's what's in our hearts. That's what's in Israel's heart here. That's what's in a million-plus Israelites that God has just redeemed. Remember, they were singing his praises. And now for the third time, they are putting him on trial and they are complaining. Now, what's interesting, what's interesting is that this is now the third time they've tried the Lord. They've complained about him. And and it's going to come to a head here. You'll notice that they complained about the bitter waters. They complained about not having bread and meat. Now they complain about not having water again. And, and then that little cluster of God's gracious provisions for them and, and all the interaction with them complaining is going to come to an end at this point. This is going to be a decisive moment for the Lord to essentially say to Israel, okay, you want to put me on trial? I'll show you what's going to happen if you put me on trial. Now, there are three things that Israel is complaining against the Lord about. The first is they are saying that the Lord is not providing for them. He is not giving them provisions. They say to Moses, give us water to drink. Uh, The people thirsted. They said, why did you bring us out to Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? So they are saying God cannot provide for us. And then secondly, they are saying God cannot protect us. They say, why did you bring us out here to kill us? God can't provide for us. God can't protect us. And then, and maybe the most egregious, they are essentially saying, God is not with us. His presence is not with us. Notice the end of the the section. And because they tested the Lord by saying, is the Lord among us or not? He can't provide for us. He can't protect us. And he didn't, he doesn't send his presence with us. Now, what's interesting about that, and you have to listen very closely, is remember, these are the descendants of Abraham. And the three things God had promised Abraham all the way back at the beginning of the Abrahamic covenant was provision, land, protection, whoever curses you, I'm going to curse. I'm going to bless those that bless you. I'm going to make you a blessing. And I'm going to be with you presence. And I'm going to give you a seed. I'm going to be present through the Messiah who's going to come from you. Provision, protection, presence. Isn't that interesting? The very descendants of Abraham are putting God on trial for the very thing that God had swore to them that he would do for them in his covenant mercy and grace in binding himself to them. Um, We see the complaint. We see the accusation. And then secondly, I want us to consider the trial. Now, notice that 
No sooner has Israel complained like this that Moses does what the people should have done. He goes to the Lord. Moses is oftentimes showing us what we're to do. When others around us are not doing what they should be doing, we should be going to the Lord. We should be bringing our prayers and petitions to him. And notice Moses goes to the Lord and he says, what shall I do with this people? They're almost ready to stone me. And notice this, verse 5, the Lord says to Moses, pass on before the people, taking with you some of the elders of Israel. Now, here's what the Lord is doing. He's saying, if Israel wants a trial, then Israel is going to get a trial. If Israel wants to put me on trial, then we are going to have a court case here in the wilderness. And you're going to take elders who are going to be witnesses, and you're going to come out to the place where I tell you, and I'm going to show you what this trial is going to look like. Again, Clowney says this, the Lord tells Moses to take elders of the people with him and his rod in his hand. The elders are the judges of Israel. They are to serve as witnesses for a court case. The rod of Moses is identified as the rod with which he struck the Nile River, turning it into blood. It is the rod of judgment, a symbol of authority and an instrument for afflicting the penalty. We recall the uh, Roman dictators and uh, judges ruling with rods that were symbols of authority and means of punishment. So God tells Moses, pass on before the people taking with you some of the elders of Israel And take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile and go. Now, those little details might be passed over if we don't think about all the things that Clownish just brought out. That the Lord is setting the stage now. And he's going to come and he's going to do something marvelous. Um, You know, if I were... Moses, I would be terrified about what's going to happen because um, as we see elsewhere in the Old Testament, when God does arise against his people in judgment, lots and lots of people die. Whether it is the earth opening up and swallowing up those complaining against those God had appointed to lead them, or whether it was David numbering the people and God sending that plague and 70,000 died on the spot. When God arises in judgment, people die. And God has every right to tell Moses, here's what I want you to do. I want you to take the elders of Israel. I want you to take the Israelites. I want you to go out in front of them. I want you to take the rod with which you struck the Nile, the rod of judgment and justice. And I want you to strike the people and destroy them now. He had every right to do that. And in fact, that's what should have happened It's what Israel deserved to have happen to them. And it's what we deserve to have happen to us. You know, we, uh, Jerry Bridges has a little book called Respectable Sins. If you've never read it, we maybe should go through that at Church Creek sometime. But, But things like complaining, things like anxiety, the things that we think are little sins. I've told you that story, I think, of uh, Jay Adams speaking at a conference once and he said, um, he said to this huge conference of biblical counseling uh, students and counseling professionals, he said, I want to see a show of hands. How many of you have committed adultery? And nobody put their hands up. They were all lying. And then he said, how many of you have ever been anxious? And everybody threw their hands up. 
And he said, you just showed me what you think is the acceptable sin. In the same way, complaining seems like such a little thing. And yet complaining against the Lord deserves the judgment of the Lord. However, notice that Israel, though they are guilty and the rod of Moses is in his hand, Israel does not receive the judgment. The rod does not fall on God's people. Moses is not told to raise the rod against Israel. Instead, we have one of the most astounding statements in the Bible. Don't miss this. This is one of the most glorious, grace-filled statements in the Bible God says, behold, I will stand there before you at the rock of Horeb. I will put myself on trial, even though the people think they're putting me on trial. I will stand in the place of those that deserve judgment. This is amazing. Now, the Lord is obviously speaking about a theophany. There's some kind of visible appearance of the Lord there on the rock. No doubt this is a pre-manifestation of the Son of God, the second person of the Godhead, manifesting himself in the wilderness and his people. Remember, he was in the pillar following them. He would look down on them. And now he says, I'm going to come down and I'm going to stand on the rock. And notice the Lord says, Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb, and you shall strike the rock. Now, For us to really understand what's happening here, you have to read further on in the Old Old Covenant, in the Old Testament. And when we come to the book of Zechariah, there's there's a really interesting prophecy in Zechariah where, where the Lord, through the prophet, says, Awake, O sword, against my companion, against my shepherd, the one who is my companion, and, and he's talking about lifting up the rod of justice. And he says, strike the shepherd, strike the shepherd, and the sheep will be scattered. Now, he doesn't say rod, he says a sword, but later uh, in the Old Testament, it speaks of the Lord's anointed in Psalm 89 being, being judged with a rod, being struck with a rod. That was the language of the Davidic covenant. But, but the idea goes all the way back to the Garden of Eden. Remember when Adam and Eve rebelled and God exiled them out of that garden temple that he put those angels with the flaming swords to guard the way back in so that if anyone tried to get back to the tree of life, the sword of justice would fall on them. And here Zechariah is saying there is a day coming when the sword of God's justice or the rod of God's justice is going to rise up and God is going to strike his shepherd. You see, the Lord is Israel's shepherd in the wilderness. He is shepherding them. And now the shepherd of Israel is saying, I will stand on the rock. I will take the rod of judgment. Um, There's this really amazing hymn that for the life of me, I don't don't know how it didn't end up in the Trinity hymnal, but um, it's called, O Christ, what burdens bowed thy head. And I love this line. Listen to this. Jehovah lifted up his rod. O Christ, it fell on thee. Thou was sore stricken of thy God. There's not one stroke for me. Thy tears, thy blood beneath it flowed. Your bruising healeth me. Jehovah lifted up his rod. O Christ, it fell on thee. That's what's happening 
on the rock at Horeb. You, you know, how do we know that this is Christ? Because Paul will tell us in 1 Corinthians 10. He will say very clearly there, that rock was Christ. The rock that followed them was Christ. Remember, this rock is going to show up again in Numbers chapter 20. By the way, you may not know this. This is year one of the wilderness journey. That's year 39. So the first year of their journeying and the last year of their journeying, the people complain against the Lord, put him on trial, and God shows Moses a rock and says, here, strike the rock and water will flow out. And there he tells Moses to talk to the rock. Now, why why that difference? Why does he say, here, strike the rock? And why does he say in the last year, in Numbers 20, in the 39th year of Israel's sojourning, why does he say, talk to the rock? Remember, Moses strikes it instead, and God still makes water come out. Well, I think very simply, Paul says that rock is Christ that followed them. That meant Christ was with them. Wherever they went, Christ was there. When they were complaining against Moses, they were complaining against Christ. When God was providing for them, Christ was providing for them. He was there in all the types and the shadows and the symbols and the pillar of fire and cloud by night and day. He was the manna. He was there. He is the the tree thrown into the waters, as we've seen. And he now is the rock who is following his people. He is always with his people. And, And God is saying there is a source of life sustaining water that I will give you from my stricken son, as we heard this morning. Um, The difference, by the way, I think is very simple. Matthew Henry points this out. Christ only has to be struck once on the cross with the rod of God's justice for our sin, and then all you have to do is ask him, and he will give you the life-sustaining water of the Holy Spirit. Isn't that awesome? That is awesome. Um, Again, uh, Edmund Clowney will pick up on this and he will say this. When Moses struck the rock, a stream of life-giving water poured out into the desert. When Jesus was crucified, John tells us that the blood and water poured from his side. We do not wonder that Moses was judged severely for striking the rock a second time when he had been told to speak to it. Only once at the appointed time does God bear the stroke of our doom. Isn't that amazing? Instead of God sending the rod on Israel for their sin, he sends it on himself. Um, This is remarkable. You know, uh, Dorothy Sayre, the old um, uh, 20th century novelist, British novelist, she Uh, was once dealing with the issue of uh, evil in the world. And why is there evil? The question of theodicy. How can a good God allow there to be evil in the world? And Sarah very famously said, "Um, I may not know all the answers to the problem of evil, but this much I know, God took his own medicine at the cross. God took his own medicine. If you think the suffering that you endure is bad, Well, God took his own medicine. He suffered under the full wrath of God when he hung on the tree for our sin. Whatever we suffer in this life, whatever wants we have, whatever we think we need, God has suffered more, endured more. Think about this. Israel's thirsting. The Lord, when the rod of judgment is falling on him, cries out, I thirst. 
and there's no water for him. There's no special source of water to quench that thirst. He is thirsting under the wrath of God. And yet, when he dies, as we heard this morning, and that, that, that spear goes through his side into his heart, the, the life-sustaining water comes out because the justice of God has been satisfied. There is no more wrath for you if you're in Christ. No matter how much you've complained, no matter how much you've sinned, no matter what you've done, there is no condemnation now for those in Christ Jesus. Look, I need to hear this every stinking day of my life. And you need to hear this every stinking day of your life. Because this is a wilderness that we are making our way through. This world is a wilderness. It is barren. We are exiles. We are sojourners. This is not it. This is not our home. Um, And there is always going to be hardship. There's always going to be times that are parched, times that are hard and hurtful and difficult, times in which we feel like maybe the Lord doesn't provide for us. Maybe the Lord isn't going to protect us. Maybe the Lord's presence isn't with us. And we come to a passage like this. And it's because of what Christ endured that we can say, I know that if my God and Father gave his Son for me, to redeem me from my sin, from Satan, and from his own wrath, and that he took the punishment I deserve, how much more will he not provide for me, protect me, and give his presence to me? Isn't that amazing? The very thing that God does at Horeb for Israel is to tell them, I am going to show you by the judgment I take that I am more than you could ever imagine in all of those things that I have already promised to be for you. You know, I love how Jesus says in the Gospels, if earthly fathers who are evil, and every man in this room that's a father is evil, every one of us, if earthly fathers who are evil know how to give good gifts to their children, and children, I want you to listen, every dad in here gives you all good gifts, lots of good gifts, way more good gifts than we had, and we're going to keep saying that. If earthly fathers who are evil know how to give good gifts to their children, how much more will your heavenly father not give the Holy Spirit the best gift to you? See, when Christ died, he purchased the spirit to send him to us to be life-sustaining and life-supplying water to our souls. So that when we start to catch ourselves complaining or doing any number of sinful things that we have a proclivity to do, when we catch ourselves doing that, what we need to realize is right now, my soul is parched, and I need the water that Christ came to give. And you know how it's a guarantee to me? And you can go to God. This is not blasphemous. You can go to the Lord, and you can say, Lord, you promised. You promised to give your spirit to me. And Lord, your son has paid the price of your justice for my sin. And so in a very real sense, and this is almost going to sound blasphemous, Jonathan Edwards said this once, that salvation and drinking from the wells of salvation is owed by God to the believer, not because God has to do it for you 
in and of himself, but because of what Christ has done. He has to give you what Christ has purchased for you. That's amazing. That, that in a very real sense, the, the wells of salvation that God offers to you. And remember Isaiah says, Oh, everyone who's thirsty, come, let him, let him buy wine and milk without money, without price. Let him eat and his soul lives. And Isaiah says to drink deeply from the wells of salvation. That because water and blood flowed from Christ, the stricken rock, we can go to the Lord and we can say, Lord, I have quenched your spirit time and time and time again. I have grieved you. I have not loved you as I ought. But Lord, your son has paid my debt and he has purchased your spirit to give me. And so, Lord, give me more of your spirit. Um, I'll leave you with this thought tonight. When we come to that place and we see what happened to Jesus and we embrace the promises of God and we go to the Lord and say, Lord, give me the life-sustaining water of your spirit that your son has purchased for me, that is pleasing to God. And when we doubt the gospel, it is displeasing to God. You know when we start grumbling and complaining? When we forget what the Lord Jesus has done for us. When we doubt that God has really forgiven us and we're looking to Christ and we doubt, that's actually dishonoring to the Lord because the Lord has lifted up the rod of justice and he has caused it to fall on his son and he only needs to be stricken once and then all you have to do is ask him. That's amazing. I hope that you'll be encouraged by this to go to the Lord boldly to say, Lord, I have complained, I have grumbled, I have sinned in so many ways against you, but I know that your son was stricken for me. I know that he took the full wrath, and I know that you have promised to give me the Holy Spirit through him, so give me more of that life-sustaining water. I hope that you'll be encouraged to do that. Let him who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the church.